Good morning, everyone. Well, I've got a question for you this morning, and that question is, why bother with church? It is a question that is increasingly on the lips of this generation as they get more and more used to sitting at home doing church in their pyjamas. And so it is a question that we need to give serious thought to because we need to be able to give answer to those who will ask, why not just sit at home and do church that way? Why are you here this morning? Why did you bother to come out in the cold and to gather here together? Why have so many of you stuck with this congregation through good times and bad times over many years? Why do we labour in prayer over this place? And what drives so many to commit their time and their energy and their finances to the work of God in this place? What answer will we be able to give to friends and family who say, why do you bother? It takes a lot of work to keep a church going. And putting aside everything that happens during the week, all of those ministries uh, that take place over the week, just think about the number of people who are involved even just in a Sunday morning service. We have the, the musicians and the singers. We have the people on the sound up the back people doing the, the computer at the back. We have people on the doors welcoming. We have the pastors uh, preaching. We've got people out serving in the kitchen who will serve you morning tea afterwards. We've got people that run our Sunday morning children's programs and prepare for them. We've got those that prepare and serve communion, those that maintain the buildings and the grounds for us, those that put time and energy into the, the beautiful floral arrangements. Um, and we've got those that clean and disinfect the building between and after our services. And it all seems like a lot of effort to go to when we could all just sit home and listen to a podcast and be done with it. You know, how we feel about church reflects our perception of the purpose of church. And if we perceive the purpose of church to be little more than a means of providing for us a once a week pick-me-up, then we should expect to feel ambivalent towards church because you can get a once a week pick-me-up listening to a podcast at home in your lounge room. So why indeed would you bother? Well, there is no one that I can think of that bothered more with the church than did the Apostle Paul. He planted her and he nurtured her and he loved her. He agonised in prayer for her. He trained and equipped and instructed her leaders. He suffered for her and found himself in jail because of his efforts on her behalf. And even while in prison, the flame of his love for the church could not be extinguished because it was there that we know that he wrote 
at least four letters, four that have made their way into our scriptures. And they continue to instruct and guide the church even today. So there is no one I can think of who would be better to ask or who would be more qualified to ask this question, why bother? And today we're going to hear exactly why he bothered, because he's put it here for us in this letter. And our passage for today is from the third chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, and we're doing verses 1 to 13. So you might like to turn there so that you can follow along. And he begins the chapter for this reason. And now that obviously implies that he's building upon something that's been said, something that is the reason. And so you need to have paid attention last week to know what the reason is, because Pastor Glenn stepped us through that reason. Verse 14 from last week, there was once hostility and division between Jew and Gentile. And verse 15, now there is peace between them in Christ. Furthermore, both of them have been reconciled and have peace with God through the cross. Verse 17, Jesus preached peace to those who were far away and he preached peace to those who were near. And so for this reason, Paul is about to get down on his knees again in prayer, but then he doesn't. And some say that he digresses at this point. Perhaps he remembers something that he wanted to add. Perhaps he needs to clarify his point further. Still others argue that this is no digression. Far from it. What's coming is actually the centrepiece of the whole letter of Ephesians with everything before it leading up to this high point and everything after it flowing out from it. Still others argue that what Paul is doing here is he's providing an answer to what he anticipates will be his reader's reaction to what he's about to say. Now, I, I don't believe personally that these verses are any sort of digression. I don't believe he lost his train of thought and, or forgot something and had to add it in later. So we're going to explore this passage this morning from the perspective of it being both the centrepiece of his argument and an answer to what he believes are some of the predicted reactions that his readers will have to what he's saying. And to understand what his predicted reaction, what their predicted reactions might be, you need to recall a little bit about their history with the Apostle Paul. And you'll find all of that laid out in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19 details Paul's time in Ephesus, where he spoke as was his practice initially in the synagogue, but after increasing opposition from the Jews, he set himself up in a lecture hall and he stayed there for two years every day having discussions with them. And it was during this time that God did extraordinary miracles through the Apostle Paul and many in Ephesus believed. They confessed their sins and so real and remarkable was their transformation that many of those who had been practicing sorcery brought all of their scrolls and had a mass public burning of all of these materials that were associated with sorcery. 
And this great number of believers attracted the attention of those whose income depended on the worship of Artemis or Diana, which the city was famous for. There were silversmiths and craftsmen who used to craft and sell silver shrines to those who came to the city um, as visitors. And they stirred up a riot and Paul eventually moved onwards towards Jerusalem. And there again he meets trouble when some Jews falsely accuse him of teaching the Jews to abandon the laws of Moses and of bringing a Gentile, a man from Ephesus by the name of Trophimus, beyond the court of the Gentiles and into those parts of the temple that only the Jews were allowed to access. Neither of these things had Paul actually done, but that didn't matter. Another riot ensues. Paul is nearly killed in the process before he is arrested and taken in chains by the Roman soldiers. When he is given the opportunity to speak, Paul shares his conversion experience and he tells them of this command of the Lord to him to go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And this notion of the Jewish Messiah being preached to the Gentiles so enrages the Jewish crowd that they shout, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. And Paul spends the next few years in custody, being shuffled from one trial to another before an extended period of house arrest in Rome. And it's during this time in custody that he writes the letter that we have before us today to this church in Ephesus. And so we can imagine the Ephesians receiving this letter with all that history that's come before it. And you can imagine what they're thinking, can't you? Peace? What peace are you talking about, Paul? All we see is trouble on every side. When you were here, a riot broke out and you were almost arrested. And then in Jerusalem, another riot broke out and you were arrested. Blessing. Where's the blessing in being in prison? Power? What power? You're in prison. Isn't that the definition of powerlessness? Heirs of God? Is this really what it means to be heirs of God? And so I believe Paul starts addressing some of these anticipated responses. And he begins by saying... I, Paul, am the prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm a prisoner, yes, and it may look like I'm a prisoner of Rome, but actually I'm here because this is where Jesus wants me to be. I am confined not by the will of men, but by the will of God. And it is for the sake of you Gentiles I'm not a prisoner of Christ Jesus because of you Gentiles, but for you, for your sake, to help you understand God's plan and to find your place in it. And this is no burden. It's a privilege. 
to be involved. Three times in this passage, Paul expresses his deep gratitude for the grace of God, which enabled him to be part of God's plan to save the people from all nations. So we're going to read the full text of this passage now before we go any further. So from Ephesians 3, uh, reading from verses 1 to 14. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly, in reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things." His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Well, mystery is at the heart of our passage for today. Paul uses the word multiple times in this passage. And as we have discussed previously, as we've journeyed through this letter to the Ephesians, the word mystery does not mean today what it did back then. Today, a mystery is something that is unknown, that we have to find clues for and try and figure out, a bit like a puzzle, what it means. You have to apply yourself to it. And that's not how the word mystery is used in the New Testament. In the New Testament, mystery simply refers to something that was previously hidden, but now has been revealed. Were you ever fascinated by card tricks as a child? I think most kids go through this phase. You know, pick a card, any card, and you pick the card and they put it in the middle of the pack and then the pack's shuffled and take the top card and is that your card? And it always is your card. The very card that you picked always ends up on the top. And you could never figure out how this trick was done. You could have it done over and over to you and you could never figure it out until you were shown. And then it was so simple and obvious. Or remember this guy who turned up at our carols a couple of years ago. Um, 
And he took one handkerchief and he showed everyone the bag and the bag was empty on the inside and he got the kids to put their hand in the bag and confirm that the bag was empty. And then they put the one handkerchief in and he blew on it and then he got them to put their hand in and the one handkerchief wasn't a black spotted handkerchief anymore, it was a whole string and they kept pulling and pulling and pulling and more and more of them came out. Or this one. What's that behind your ear? There's nothing behind my ear. And then he'd pull out this ball. Oh, there's another one behind the other ear. And, he'd, and he had the kids in, in hysterics because there were red balls coming out from everywhere. And it's simple. All of these tricks are simple when you know how they work, when you've been shown how, how they are to be done. But if you don't know and you're not shown, then you could go on for years watching these tricks and be amazed at the skill of this magician. And that's kind of like the mystery, the way mystery is used in the New Testament. It's a truth that was always there, previously hidden, but now it's revealed. Now, the Apostle Paul, he was, as we are mostly all aware, he was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was well educated. He was well trained in the scriptures. He knew his Old Testament scriptures better than probably anyone else. And yet he was blind to what they pointed to until it was revealed to him. Until he met the risen Jesus on that road to Damascus. Like all good Jews, he expected the Messiah to come waiting for the Messiah to come. And like all other Jews of his time, he would have expected him to come and to free the Jews from Roman oppression and to free them from pagan influence and to restore the temple worship to what God had intended. That was God's plan as he likely understood it. He might then have maybe expected the Gentiles to come in submission to the law of Moses, to the nation of Israel and to their God. But never would he have anticipated that Jew and Gentile would be heirs together, members of one body and sharers in the same promises. Never that was until it was revealed to him. And he was called to be a missionary to the Gentiles. Then he became a bearer of the mystery of the gospel to them. These great truths concerning Jesus the Messiah and the salvation of the Gentiles had to be first revealed to him. The Spirit revealed God's plan that included the Gentiles. They too would be God's people because of Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, there would be one body made up of Jew and Gentile, and they would, through the gospel, be fellow heirs and share with the Jews on equal terms the promise of life and salvation. God's promise to bless all the nations wasn't new. It had been there all the time. It was known since the times of Abraham. There was no mystery in that. 
The mystery in this passage is not that God planned to bless the Gentiles. It is that they would be heirs together with Israel. Those dividing walls would be pulled down and there would only be one body and that would be the church. And what Paul calls the administration of this revealed truth or of this ministry, uh, mystery is the strategy. It's how it would be done. And that is that Jew and Gentile would both be saved through the death of Jesus Christ who would bear the sins of Jew and Gentile alike and suffer the wrath of God on the cross on behalf of both Jew and <coughs> Gentile. And this mystery, this truth that was revealed to him so captivated the Apostle Paul that he would spend the rest of his life as a servant to this gospel. He would travel much of the known world at the time in a time when travel was not easy at all. He would be laughed at. He would be scorned by those who once admired him. He would be beaten and heckled and shipwrecked and snake-bitten and imprisoned. And ultimately, he would die for the sake of that gospel. Yet even here in this letter, written during a time of imprisonment, we get the sense that he's still caught up in the wonder of it all. All through these first chapters, we've encountered these great long sentences from Paul where he just pours out praise. And were it not for our English translators inserting a few punctuation marks for us, they'd be very difficult to read because he just spills out the praise. He has seen what God is doing and he can hardly fathom that God would allow him to be a part of it let alone that God would charge him with this great responsibility to preach to the Gentiles. He is at pains to point out that this was not his choosing, nor was it a result of anything special that he had done, for he considered himself the least of all of God's people. God chose him, and he made it possible for him to fulfil this great responsibility only by his gift of grace and the working of his power. And that same grace and that same power is still at work in the church today. And so we come back to our big question for today, why bother? What did Paul see in the church that drove him to love her so much and to commit the rest of his life to her nurture and her growth. And I think it's an issue of perspective. When Paul looked at the church, he saw something that blew his mind. He didn't see an hour on Sunday sitting in rows singing some nice songs, listening to someone speak out the front and then shuffling off home. He saw God's plan. He could see what God was doing and when he saw it, he recognised it as something that is marvellous. 
so marvellous that he would marvel at it for the rest of his life. And what he saw there is there for us in verse 10. Verse 10 says, His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Who we are and what we do here matters because we and every other gathering of believers all around the world, we're the way in which God has chosen to reveal his wisdom, not just in the physical world here on earth, but also in the heavenly realms. The purpose of the church is not to provide a once a week pick-me-up for believers, nor is it to be a crutch for them to lean on. The purpose of the church is far higher and far greater than we imagine because the church is God's wisdom on display. And that, to me, is as amazing as it is frightening. Imagine if you were going to put together a Facebook post on behalf of God, something that would demonstrate his manifold wisdom. What would you post? Maybe a picture taken from space of the Earth. Maybe an image of the Milky Way in all of its glory. Perhaps you'd pick a model of DNA to try and reveal how that works and encodes life. Perhaps you'd pick some fascinating intricate ecosystem like the Amazon or the Great Barrier Reef. Perhaps that would show the wisdom of God to the world. Maybe a model of the human eye or the sound of an orchestra playing one of the greats. God says, no, I choose the church. She will demonstrate my wisdom to angels and to demons and to the power structures of this world. And what a very great privilege and a very great responsibility we have been handed. Every church should be like a little microcosm, a foretaste of the way things will be in eternity. Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce describes the church as God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future. Want to know what diversity looks like? You should look to the church. It should be on display in the church. Do you want to know what unity looks like? You should look to the church because that's where it should be displayed. Want to know what reconciliation looks like? You should look to the church. Want to find true peace? True peace is only found through the reconciling work of God on the cross and you should find it there too on display in abundance in the church. And yet, so often it is not. And how it must have distressed 
the Apostle Paul to have to write to churches about quarrels and arguments breaking out amongst them and about issues of immorality and disunity and jealousy and disorder. And all of these issues are like tarnish on silver. That silverware that should be on display in your cabinet, tarnished. That nasty stuff that hides the shining beauty of the silver. And we must do everything within our ability to make the church shine forth, to rid ourselves of all of these things that tarnish the church and prevent the rest of the world from seeing the wisdom of God on display as it was intended. The church is made up of human beings. Human beings like you and me, they are all forgiven but they are not perfect. And yet they are God's chosen means of displaying his manifold wisdom. Not only in the physical realm here on earth, but in the spiritual realm. We are to remind Satan and the demons that their time is just about up. Because through God's church, the reconciling and the restoring work that was begun way back is being fulfilled. That is how big a deal the church really is. We're engaged in something far bigger than turning up for an hour on Sundays and sitting in rows, listening to songs and a speaker. And if we truly grasped the enormity of that, I am convinced that we would take every opportunity we possibly could to kneel before the Father in praise and worship and we would be clambering over one another to meet together in prayer for the church and to cover the church in prayer. Philip Yancey has a little book, which is one of my favourites. It's very easy read. It's called Church, Why Bother? And in it, he recounts a story that he heard from another pastor of a high school band whose abysmal rendition of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony would have made the composer roll in his grave in spite of the composer being deaf. And the pastor asks, why bother inflicting upon these kids the burden of trying to attain what Beethoven had in mind for that Ninth Symphony, when not even the greatest symphony orchestras on earth can attain it to perfection? And the answer that he gives is because the high school band will give some people their only opportunity to experience Beethoven's great Ninth Symphony. That high school band will fall a long way short of perfect, but for some, they are the only way that they will hear Beethoven's message. And the church is just like that high school band. We may feel incapable and unworthy of the high calling that we've been given, 
But we do well to remember that it is through the grace of God and the working of his power in us that we are able to serve. It was through the grace of God and God's power working in him that Paul was able to serve. And so we must remember these words of Jesus to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Don't be discouraged, Paul tells the Ephesians, because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Even in his weakness and his imprisonment, Christ would be magnified. And he surely was. Paul writes to the Philippian church of all the ways in which his imprisonment served to advance the gospel. And the very fact that we are still here today learning from the apostle in chains is surely evidence that his imprisonment was part of God's plan. Paul never really got over the wonder of this very great mystery, this revealed truth, this insight into God's marvellous plan for the church and the grace of God which allowed him to play his part in it as the apostle to the Gentiles. It brought him to his knees in prayer and in thanksgiving and worship. And next week, Pastor Glenn is going to guide us through this next section, which is his prayer uh, for the church. And then after that, for the remainder of the letter, Paul devotes his attention to the practical matters of how the church should function so that God's intended plan will be fulfilled and that his wisdom will be made known and demonstrated to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The church is a very big deal and it is our very great privilege by the grace of God to be part of her. Love her. Pray for her. Nurture her. Do all that you can to strengthen her. But most of all, treasure her. She is a big deal to God, and she, so she should be a very big deal to us as well. Amen. Father God, how we must disappoint you with our small and petty views about church that conceal the beauty of your wisdom. We represent you here on earth, and we make known your manifold wisdom in the heavenly realms. Help us, Lord, to grasp the enormity of what that means and to comprehend the great treasure with which you have entrusted us. Forgive us, Father, when we have let you down. We must at times cause you great pain. Thank you for your very great love for us. Help us to love the church with all of her faults and failings because you first loved her and you chose her. She was your choice. These imperfect people, like all of us, gathered all over the world, you chose us to represent you. In our weakness, Lord, be our strength. Amen.